everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, Episode 8, Get Over It? Today we're going to take a look at some of the long-standing principles of the open source community that maybe have outlived their usefulness. And uh, that's, this comes from a discussion uh, from a blog post, actually, uh, written over on techrepublic.com, and we'll have the link to that uh, in the show notes. But uh, uh, we'll get to that a little later on. We're going to talk about uh, uh, maybe the fact that it might be time for the Linux community to grow up a little bit. Uh, but before we get too far into there, let me introduce our hosts uh, for the show, the panel of hosts, Mr. Chris Neves, known as Slipped in the chat room. Hello, Chris. Hey, everyone. How goes it? Uh, it's a good thing. We have clean connections and everything's good now. Uh, Mr. Seth Anderson, who is this week just underscore Seth in the chat room. Pick one, Seth, and stay with it, will you? Well, where would the mystery be? Hey, everyone. <laughs> and Mr. Aaron Butler, our noob in residence known as former fat guy. Hey, Aaron. It's a balmy, beautiful day in metro Atlanta. What qualifies as balmy in Atlanta? Eh, 90-ish. 90-ish. Well, we're down to 96 here in Texas, so it's actually cooled down a lot since we first started. I was talking a little bit uh, before we went on air about uh, my garage setup that I, I mentioned uh, in our Tightwad Tech podcast, uh, the one that uh, has most recently come out. Um, actually, I think it's coming out this week after this airs. Man, it's getting hard to keep all this stuff up. Not only do I do four shows, uh, but I do them asynchronously, so... I may do episode four of one that is going to be released in three weeks while I'm doing episode 55, another one that's going to be released in a couple of days. <laughs> well, one clarification, Mark. It actually has cooled off quite a bit. It's, on, it's 81 right now. 81. And, okay. Yeah. It's, it's almost nine o'clock here. Well, here in my garage, in what I call my pod pod, it is 87.5. So I'm actually sitting in an 87.5 degree environment. Um, so as such. I uh, could go outside if you wanted me to. Yeah, well, that would make me feel better, uh, because then you would be suffering as much as I am. I could go outside, too. At least then I'd be in the 80s with you guys. How are things up there in lower Canada, Chris? Well, we're at 80 exactly outside, but I think uh, at the building I'm in right now, we're, we're at probably about 65 in the room I'm in. It's nice. <laughs> I don't think there is an air conditioner in Texas capable of making a room 65 right now. You have to have a refrigerator to do that. <laughs> So anyway, uh, before we get too far in, I wanted to mention um, some listener feedback uh, provided by a fellow by the name of Bill Davis, and uh, he mentioned what, uh, on his initial email, he thought was a Linux distribution, but upon closer inspection, and he and I have talked about it in email, it's not actually a Linux distro, just a uh, um, set of programs that runs under Linux or Mac or um, Windows, and it's called LD, E-L-D-Y, and you can find it at LD.com. And the, uh, the whole purpose of LD there, the entire project is designed at making computers accessible and easy to use for the elderly. And if you really, if you think about that, it's a really good fit because you're, you know, 80, 90 years old. Uh, you're probably likely to have some health issues. Getting out is, is, is difficult. Uh, and so in, um, maybe you can turn to the computer as a way to, uh, uh, lessen your own isolation. But technology is not always easy for, for the elderly. To grasp, so the LD project has uh, worked to remedy that, and they've created a suite of tools which is really uh, very much um, like the Windows 8 interface or the or the uh, uh, Metro interface on Windows Phone. You've got tiles that do different things, and it's very simple. It's very large, so if you got uh, bad eyesight or poor hand eye coordination, it's easy to hit those buttons. 
and you can surf the web, you can chat, you can read email. They even give you their your own email address at ld.com, so you don't have to worry about setting anything up, any any of that stuff up through your ISP. Their setup process does it all for you. Um, my only exception is 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 the name of the site. LD? At least they didn't call it oldgeezers.com. <laughs> well, <laughs> the site maybe. is uh, Italian based, uh, so maybe that means something different in Italian, or hopefully, <laughs> or maybe it doesn't have the same negative connotation. I don't know. It's like the whole whole thing about Nova not selling very well in Spanish, right? You know, no uh, Mexico. Yeah, um. Um, <laughs> but the. Uh, the the software is pretty slick. Uh, one of the things, because it is made in Italy for an Italian audience, uh, some of the built-in bookmarks they would go to, like there's one for television, and so you, the idea is you can watch television shows on the web, and it takes you to a listing of the top television shows in Italy, which I guess is fine if you speak Italian, but I don't, and therefore was a bit lost. Well, it's still a neat little project. It is. It'd it's, be nice if. It would be cool if they would regionize it a little bit better, but maybe that's something on their that they're going to work on. Yeah, and maybe they're looking for developers or, or uh, um, translators, people in other countries to help them with that. Well, it does uh, say it's available in 22 languages, at least the install and support packages. Right. And I played with that, and the what happens is the buttons, uh, the menus change, but pretty much that's it. I mean, yeah, you get menus in a different language, but everything else, the the localization sort of things are all right. very Italy centric. Changes from click here to click here, that kind of thing. <laughs> Manja. It, uh, and now every person from Italy is now thinking that we're evil. Yeah. Well, I don't know about <laughs> evil, ignorant. <laughs> and they may be right on that one. So anyway, I just wanted to mention LD.com. And another thing I just, this is entirely personal, uh, but I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, this week was, uh, Independence Day here in the U.S., uh, last weekend. And, um, I, I barbecued a brisket. One of the things I enjoy doing is good old fashioned Texas barbecue, hickory smoking or mesquite smoking. And, uh, mm. when I went to my local meat market, which where we live is Walmart, <laughs> I went there and literally the smallest brisket they had was 22 pounds. And I've wow. got a, I've got a family of two adults and three kids under eight, uh, so twenty two pounds is a lot of brisket. So um, rather than cutting it in half and freezing half of it and then dealing with the fact that I didn't really have the space to keep all that, I just cooked the whole thing. So now I am a wash in a sea of of mesquite smoked brisket. And so just as oh, we were doing man. the show warm up, we've been coming up with creative ways to eat brisket. Like you do after Thanksgiving when you got all the turkey. I was just eating macaroni and cheese with chunks of bis- brisket mixed in. You know? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. Well, I have wow. to say, being a Texas transplant to Georgia, we've been here four and a half years. Georgia is a lot like Texas and the fact that it's a southern state, so forth, so on. In fact, the area that we live in here is very similar to the area of Texas that we lived in for 15 years. But the one thing that Georgia does not have very much of at all is good barbecue. All our Georgia people out there are probably getting mad now, but they don't, everything here is pork, pulled pork. I never even heard of pulled pork when I lived in Texas, but that's what you get here. And the sauces are more vinegar based and you cannot buy a brisket. Wow. Really? You can't go to the store and buy a brisket. You have to go to a meat market to get a brisket. Uh, And you can't buy brisket in pretty much any, barbecue place unless they're like a, a place that has as like a specialty thing texas brisket and I, I found one of those so far that's anywhere near me and is it and good it was, eh it was okay yeah i've had i've had better brisket at 15 different places in texas 
and uh, my brother-in-law makes an incredible brisket and I brought some back and you know, all these people here have never had real brisket. So I took a bunch of it to work and one of my friends ate it and his eyes got real big and looked at me and he said, it's like beef bacon. <laughs> That's a good description of it. I said, yes, it is. You know, yes, you can actually is, buy beef bacon, beef belly bacon. I've never had it, but I've seen it. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm actually going home to Texas this next week and I'm hoping that while I'm there, I'll get some brisket. I actually prefer to do ribs, uh, pork ribs. It's my, my, what I like to do. But, uh, uh, my daughter, oddly enough, my seven year old daughter, uh, or soon to be seven, uh, is a big fan of brisket. And so she asked for brisket and her birthday is, uh, Next week, and her party is six days from today that we're having her birthday party. And guess what she asked me to do? A brisket. So not only are we awash in brisket, but it'll be too old to serve at a party, you know, in seven days. So I've got to do another 20-pound brisket for the birthday party. Well, at oh, least darn. tons of leftovers. That's right. <laughs> I know yeah. what we can have for dinner, Mark, on the uh, 17th. Yeah, yeah. I, I will serve you Texas Southern brisket. You've had my, my barbecue. I'm a pretty darn good cook, if I do say so myself. No, no corroboration on that. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so I, I, instead of ribs, I'll make sure I do some brisket for you. Uh, but anyway, so that's uh, that's all the uh, inane babble that I had for the show. You guys have anything you going on in your life this week? No, it's pretty quiet uh, around the, around me for this week. Yeah, not much going on here. Okay. So that was uh, well done. <laughs> and now we'll move on to the topic of the show. Uh, I've called this one Get Over It with a Question Mark because it really is uh, a question. Are these principles that uh, the open source community needs to hang on to, or are they things that we should get rid of? Uh, Can you say it for me one more time like you did at the intro, Mark? I really enjoyed the way you went up at the end of the sentence. Get over it? <laughs> you like that makes that? me laugh every time. There you go. Well, you know, uh, it's my attempt at being a radio guy. Uh, so, uh, Seth Anderson, uh, actually had this in the show notes, uh, for a previous episode and we got to talking about it, uh, before we started recording and it, it seemed like something that actually would warrant its own show. So I'm just going to kind of turn it over to Seth. He's going to take the lead on this discussion and, and, and we'll, uh, go from there. Maybe we'll have an answer at the end of it, but probably not. Well, thanks, Mark. I was, um, one of the, um, oh my gosh. I even forgot what they're called now. One of the blogs I subscribe to, sorry, is um, is called 10 Things. It's a Tech Republic blog. And he wrote this article, 10 points that the Linux community should revisit. Basically, he was talking about in order to break out of kind of uh, just being a little small market player and become a big force on the desktop anyway, that Linux should embrace, and not just Linux, but the open source community in general, there's 10 different points that they should embrace or at least look at maybe possibly changing in order to open themselves up to a bigger market. And um, because, you know, traditionally Linux people are very free. Um, everything is free and everyone's free to do their own thing. So everyone can access the source code and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in, he talks about Jack Wallen is his name. He talks about how, some of the things that Linux was built on, it might be, it might have been good to get them to the table, but if they want a bigger piece of the pie, they maybe should look at changing them. And so one of the first points that he talked about, just jumping right into the article, was uh, digital rights management. And, um, you know, it's one of those things, if you're a Linux diehard fan, you'll say, you know, there'll never be DRM in the Linux platform. 
And that's going to be one of the reasons that he points out is holding Linux back. Think about Apple and iTunes. You know, iTunes exploded. Part of that was the device, and part of it was how Apple did the iTunes thing. And also think of Netflix. You know, if you want to watch Netflix in a Linux machine, you have to do it in a, in a Windows virtual machine because there's really not a good Netflix app for Linux because Linux doesn't really embrace the digital rights management that um, Silverlight is built on. So that was just the first point he made is that the refusal to embrace DRM in any form, it kind of helps, it keeps that killer app from coming to the Linux world. You know, again, why are we going to ditch Windows whenever we have to have it to play Netflix on our computers? You know, if I'm going to have to open up Windows inside a virtual machine or dual boot it, then that's one reason not to have Linux anyway because I can't access something I want. You know, and so, that's all, I don't know if it's entirely, but it's at least almost a red herring uh, because on uh, Android, which is essentially Linux, there is a Netflix app. So somebody somewhere has figured that out uh, using uh, Java, I assume, since most apps in Android are written in Java. Uh, but, uh, you know, the idea that Netflix can't do it, I don't buy it. I think they're not doing it. And it's probably uh, because uh, Google made some concessions somewhere along the line. Uh, for example, it doesn't work on all handsets. It only works on some handsets. So there's probably some secret sauce in there that, that works with a DRM chip or something in the phone. So, uh, yeah, it's it's not that the technology is holding you back. It's that uh, it's the legal stuff. Yeah, but is, is uh, Android truly an open source software or is it not? I know that there's portions of it that's available and obviously there's broad uh, APIs or whatever available for people to write their own programs, but you know, uh, is it really as available to be rooted all the way down to the bottom of it as a, as a Linux distro is? Um, I'm asking the question. Yeah, I don't, it is. Yes. <clears throat> the, it's, well, it, I, re I retract said question. <laughs> uh, they do it interestingly uh, um, in that they Google develops and works on it, and when they think it's ready, they release it. Now, the open source community is working on it constantly, but Google doesn't always release everything. Like, for example, the Gmail app is proprietary um, in Google. The, the, the Google Maps thing is proprietary, so they don't always release all of that. But as far as the actual operating system core of Android they say that they will always uh, release that eventually. Uh, it's, there's kind of been some uh, issues with uh, Honeycomb, the fact that they haven't released that yet, and it's been out for a while. Um, but Google says well, they will when they're ready. Yeah, I think the reason they didn't release Honeycomb is the fact that they said it wasn't 100% um, viable for every tablet, right? which is why they held it back. And it would suck on a phone. It is a tablet OS, and yep. they know that somebody's going to put it on a phone, and it's not going to work. And they don't want that black eye. Well, here's a. Have y'all seen? I uh, I've read about them online, but I haven't tried them. It's like you can run Android apps from your desktop now. Um, I don't know if it's a website or a VM or something for Android. Would these would this Netflix app work in that? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess no, because there are those hardware restrictions. Like there are, there are legitimate Android devices that Netflix doesn't work on. Uh, okay. And so I'm going to say And also if I remember right, if you have a if you have one of those handsets but you rooted the phone, it disables the Netflix program. I haven't tried that, 
but that may very well be right. That's something I've read. I've seen that. At least I should say I've seen. I read it on a couple of different news blogs. Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, they had the uh, the Netflix app was probably one of the most locked down things I've seen. It would only run on a couple of models, and then somebody released a. Uh, I don't know whether it was a rooted version of the app. I don't know if that's not even the right term. The uh, backwards, um, what's the word? Reverse engineered version of the app that would play on other versions of Android. That would work on other versions of Android that you could download right off the web. It wasn't available in the store. And then that got yanked. <clears throat> and it was only up for a little while. I'm not sure what the status is right now. but Because I, I had a friend that his wife had it on her Droid X, I think it was, and or Incredible. And he got it when it came out and put it on his uh on his on his droid and but then before he could get it to me and tell me where it was it was gone so mm. i don't know what the what the what the end result of all that is but well and i know personally i think that's kind of a, a red like you were saying mark a red herring because i know like on my amazon uh, i stream amazon videos all the time on my linux machine and if amazon has a way to do it why can't netflix yeah. Well, Amazon does Flash, right? Netflix is Silverlight. So there's at least right. something there. Silverlight is, that's why you can't do it on Linux itself. Hey, uh, uh, guys, while we're sitting here, I, I've been Googling and just put in for fun because of what Seth's question, how to run Android Netflix app on Linux. And the first result in Google is an article from July 5th. OMAP4 earns first Netflix HD certification on Android. Okay. News Linux for devices, and then it goes into uh, Netflix has launched a certification program for its net stri- uh, its Netflix HD certification. So they're they're still actively. My point is they're still actively developing the Netflix app. Obviously, if they've got news coming out, you know, four days ago about it about streaming the HD version now. <clears throat> so FYI, sorry. Okay, but anyway, all this comes back to the whole DRM thing. And uh, the uh, the original article's point was that Linux is always going to be held back if they don't accept the reality that DRM exists. And for if you don't know what DRM, what we're talking about, digital rights management, or as some people like to call it, digital restrictions management, it's basically being able to say, my stuff can't be copied or, um, you know, things like that. Interestingly, iTunes, uh, recently backed off of, of DRM. Now all their stuff they release is DRM free. Um, and so it may look like the, the industry is moving away from it. But then on the other hand, well, well here's a good example interrupting myself. Uh, there is no Blu-ray player for Linux at all, as far as I know, because Blu-ray is DRM'd. Um, and there is no, there's no license. There's nothing you can buy. There's no way to do it, uh, not even illegally. Um, but but uh, uh, because the Linux community hasn't accepted that. If they did, and some uh, distribution like Ubuntu paid the license and maybe charged the users a little bit for the download, uh, then we could watch Blu-rays on Linux. But right now we can't. Yeah, I was not even aware of the Blu-ray restriction. I have yet to buy a Blu-ray player. Well, if you're watching a DVD on Linux, you're doing it technically illegally because you're circumventing the encryption. Uh, they haven't gotten online with the on board with the with the DRM there yet. Somebody just found a way around it. Like even like if I was watching it through VLC. Exactly. Yeah, VLC. Really? Yep. VLC cracks it, and then you watch it. Oh, well, that's interesting to know. So you're a felon, Seth. Just if, so you if, know. 
if it if I even if I own the disc, if I watch it with a manner that it cracks the encryption, it's illegal. Yep. Yep. Because well, you're breaking the encryption. That's just silly. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, just blatantly accepting all DRM, we're not necessarily saying that, but maybe having the conversation is something that could benefit the Linux community overall. You know, I would like as an end user to have that option. Maybe I want to pay twenty bucks to get that license, but I can't because of the philosophical religious holy war of of openness, of freeness. Um free is in speech, as Stallman would say. Um and so they you know, they by being freedom zealots, they take freedom away from me. Because I can't if I want to pay for something, I don't have that option. Yeah, but we want to give you a choice. And the choice we give you is you can't use it. Yeah. You, yeah. you want to pay for your own um private insurance? You can't. You have to take the government's insurance that's offered to you? That sounds unconstitutional. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so and we welcome you to everyday politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, it like all ties back together. It's related. It really is. <laughs> it really is. All right, Seth. Right, what's yeah. the what's the next thing on his list of ten? At this rate, yeah, this was, will be a two and a half hour podcast. <laughs> well, really, we were already talking about it. It was he was talking about free, as in free beer. Has I can't remember that guy's name, but has in itself doesn't cost anything. And of course, you know, one of the things about Linux is you put things out there and everything is free. And the the question he was asking was how much faster could apps and OSs be developed and how much better would they be if people were getting paid, if there were more paid developers. And I think kind of like how Microsoft, you can buy a subscription to TechNet. Now, I'm not saying I would pay $200 a year, but, you know, would I pay 20 or $30 a year for, you know, everything in a distributions library? Like, say I wanted to be an Ubuntu Linux guy, and, you know, I'm paying them $20 a year so they can buy the DRM to allow me to watch Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. So it was just like, you know, we're not necessarily saying no more free software for you. Um, and this is something that kind of already is in like the business model versus the purely open source model. But, um, he was just talking about, you know, if I'm working to develop apps or OSs, you know, maybe I should get paid for it a little bit more than the trickle that comes in with a donate now button on the website. And plus, you know, how many times have you tried to give somebody free software and you've heard, well, you get what you pay for. And if, if it's not, if it were good, they would charge money for it, so I don't want to try it. I have heard that, yeah. If, it, yeah, if We it, actually have a policy at, or had a policy at our office where our corporate <clears throat> IT department would, basically would not buy open source, not buy, not use open source or free uh, freeware type stuff as a policy across there. My friend Bob and I were talking about starting a business where we just charge people to, you know, repackaged it and sell the, sold the support because that's, Tons of, I mean, that's what people do, obviously, but there's, it's, it is kind of still a stigma in some circles. Um, we actually bought a $20,000 application that does almost as much as the free application that we already had. Um, but it's licensed and it's supported. So, yeah, hallelujah. Having somebody whose head will roll goes a long way in business. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Seth, let's skip past number three and we'll come back to that one because, uh, number four on the list was support, which we just stumbled headlong into. Yeah. And that is something that is very hard to find in the Linux community unless you're like one of the business customers. But I uh, talked about how, you know, many people 
if if I if they download Linux Mint or a distribution that is set up to be you know super friendly for the user, but they do have a question, where do they go for support? Now again, I think that even right now versus a year ago, the Linux community has made tremendous strides in this one. But you know when I first started dabbling in Linux, it was very hard to find support because the people who knew it thought you should know it already. And then everybody else was clueless about it. You know, you always hear RTFM and you want to snipe back. Well, if you would write one, I would be more than happy to read it. RTFM so, uh, is read the fine manual. Yes. I thought an abbreviation would be more appropriate yes. there. Because, I mean, nice if catch. you go to a forum, that's the first thing you see, RTFM. Right. And you're like, well, write one. Yeah, or but again, or it's read the fine man page. <laughs> you know, you're supposed yeah. to uh, look at some broken uh, documentation that was written in the '70s for the G compiler uh, and know what you're talking about. Um, support. Well, I think the other problem that shows up for support is, you know, most of these you know free ones like you know Ubuntu or any of the other guys, um, they don't have the manpower for support. So even if they, even if we could pay them. They would have to then go out. It would be the whole chicken and egg idea. No one has the capital or the manpower to set up a support network for a distribution. But even if they did have the capita coming in, it would take six, nine months to get people trained in for support. And by that time, you'd lose, you know, all the people that were downloading your software because they weren't able to support you because you were in queue for six hours. Well, but you know, there is some truth to that, but when I was doing call center, we would take somebody who doesn't know anything, and in just a couple of weeks, you can teach them how to handle 70 or 80% of the issues so the people who really know what to do are free to work on that 20%. So I don't know that it would take six to nine months to ramp up support, but if they had the cash flow, they could have a good support network going in a month, I would say. Yeah, Seth, you're actually a, a good person to speak to this because you spent a couple of years working in call centers doing support for people. Yes, and you know, and really, because people would call up and ask me how to do something, and while I was talking to them, I was frantically learning the product so that I could sound like I knew what I was talking about until I actually knew what I was talking about. And that happens because you know, people buy a Windows computer, they expect you to support every application that could ever possibly be loaded on a Windows machine, whether you know it or not. And I think it would be the same way with uh, with uh, Linux. You know, people would call in and they expect you to be able to make stuff work. And if it's just some easy thing like, you know, uh, sudo app git or an update, but if it is something hard, then the people who know how to do that would then be free to do that because you have the lower level people taking the lower level calls. Okay, Seth, but you're talking about end user support. Do you think that would be the same model in business support? Well, I I think in business support, it's kind of already there. And it's one of those things, if they had the cash flow coming in of, say, a subscriber model, you know, something other where they're just paying some small, I'm not talking about charging like uh, Microsoft does for Windows or Office or anything, but I think if the, if the, if the ability is there to make money selling the service, companies can find people to do it 
And it would just be how, you know, there's some good companies that you go to for support, and there's some other not-so-good companies you stay away from for support. And I think the Linux lev- the Linux thing would be just mir- kind of mirror the greater Windows community. I mean, don't you think that would be the case? I do. I think if, if someone like, say, Red Hat, who already has the system in place, if they would actually set up some, you know, do some big advertisement push, saying that they now have a consumer-grade desktop drop-in, you know, with all the bells and whistles, blah, 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 and actually compete on the, on the you know, on the TV and on the radio and, and push really hard against Microsoft, I think Red Hat would be the first company that would be able to fight it because they already have the support network in place. Now, if somebody, say, like Shuttleworth and Ubuntu start stepped up, they would have to redesign all that stuff from the ground up to get to the place where Red Hat already is. Well, doesn't uh, can't you buy support from uh, Ubuntu? I'm I'm pretty sure there is an Ubuntu support option, uh, but that's fresh. I think that's just recently. Right, so they are doing it, right to some degree. Uh, I but think Red we, Hat is the one that has it. Uh, they have a global network already. Maybe the bigger is, issue with uh, support is being able to hire an IT guy on site or to get somebody, um, you know, to fly out to you. I mean, Ubuntu is based in South Africa, right? So you buy a support contract from them. If your server goes down, you want somebody to have a, 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 a you know, like a five-hour guarantee I'm going to be on site. And and there are Windows guys everywhere who can do that. You can buy them and keep them in-house. Uh, the Linux guys are harder to find, and certainly the Linux firms are even harder to find than that. Right. Well, it, that's why support is very much tied into money, because if those companies don't have money to develop a training network, then they're not going to have people around to fix their stuff that's broken that nobody's using because there's no support for it. So like it's I one said earlier, it's the chicken or the egg. What was that, Aaron? Oh, I guess that wasn't Aaron. Seth? It was me, I think. I, I was saying that it's a chicken and egg thing because we have, you know, which way, you know, who's going to come first? Is it going to be the support network or is it going to be the the training farms to get the people to be in the support network? Yeah. So yeah. it's... Is is that really uh well maybe again let's try to tie it back to the same article. Uh, the, his assertion is that a forum doesn't count as support. And there's a lot. Of I would agree. That. Yeah, and neither does an IRC room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A chat room and a forum, and, and that's fine for us, right? Uh, I, I'm sure we've all done it, done that, gone to an IRC room or a forum for support, and it and it works. Um, but there's, you know, it's that, that much vaunted 800 number where you can call and talk to a, a guy in India named Bob. Um, that's important and that doesn't exist in the Linux world. Well, you know, from, from my standpoint, um, having to go track down an answer or go with the back and forth as a new guy, if I was, if I was your average user out there and just needed some, a quick answer, I might get a quick answer in the forum or IRC, but I might get a varied quality of answer. And then once the person gives me the wrong answer and it crashes my system or it fails to work, then what's my recourse? Right. Ask again and hope somebody else helps me. Yeah. And I you don't know, have a, I don't have a ticket number. I can call back and ask for the supervisor or anything like that. 
and it's a once bitten twice shy thing. I mean, if if some guy who thinks he knows more than he does in the in the forum gives you bad advice, you're not ever going to trust that again. Yeah, and but you know, part of it, a lot of it when I want support, I go to the web a lot and I go to a lot of forums, but I know that not all forums are created equal. You know, if I have a technical question, there's a couple of forums that I really trust and even in there I'm in them enough to know, oh, if that guy posted it, I think it's going to be some good quality information versus something else. So, I mean, you know, I think, and again, I think this is kind of being addressed because a year ago, you know, I wouldn't have even said support was a known word in the Linux world. But I just, I see a lot of progress in just the past year. Yeah, it's that whole vetted quality of of quality of support, too. Because, I mean, there's pages and pages of junk out there. So, But now what would be the correct way to put those vetted pages of support up? Would it be a – I mean, we've already agreed that forms and IRC are the wrong place. Would a wiki be a better place? Well, I don't know. It's like, you know, if I want a Microsoft answer, I go to TechNet because that's Microsoft. Um, there's right. other you places need some canani- canonical location. Well, canonical is not the right word because that's what Shuttleworth has used. But you need some official location like TechNet, um, where where you know that you're going to get an official answer from an official employee. Hmm. Yeah, and again, I, I think this is well underway. But it's sort of like you know when XP first came out. Even in the Microsoft world, people didn't know how to support it because all the business people were using Windows 2000. After it was out for a while and the technicians who would be supporting it started using it, then the level of support and the availability of information got high enough. There was never any good support for Vista because we all decided um, that it was it was awful and we refused to use it. And now... We're getting some. We're getting to the place where there's getting to be good support for Windows Seven. Uh, it's one of those things, you know. Linux is out and it's mature enough now. And like I say, you can find a lot more support for it than you could. And the support you're able to kind of tell if it's good or not. And we as technicians, we're kind of on the front line. We're going to the forums and we're taking that information and we're putting it in everyday computer use for our friends around us. All right, so uh, moving back rather than moving on uh, to point number three of the article, support would be less important if it weren't so darn hard to use in the first place. Uh, the level of difficulty um, is a big deal. It really is. Um, and again, you know, the latest version of let's take Puppy Linux. We talked about that in a future in a previous episode. The current version of Puppy is so much easier to use than, you know, the one I first saw three or four years ago. Um, but there are still some sticky points. Um, but again, it's gotten easier to use as the OS itself has become more mature. Um, and like I say, I even put on the show notes that I have the most trouble calling this an issue that needs to be revisited because I see the level of difficulty that mountain you have to climb to be able to use Linux, I see that getting smaller and easier to navigate on really a, a daily or weekly basis. Well, and let's also not forget that uh, when companies or distributions 
move to that, they get the biggest blowback from their own community, right? Unity is designed to be easy to use, uh, and the the neckbeards are blowing up about how Unity sucks. So when they try to make something easy, uh, their own community attacks them for it. Well, and really, that was a lot of the issue with Vista. In an effort to make it easier, they changed it so everybody who knew how Windows worked no longer knew how Windows worked. So those of us who were XP experts, we hated Vista because all of our previous knowledge base suddenly became obsolete. And, you know, and that bad rep snowballed. Uh, so it's it's kind of, I don't know, the price of progress, I guess. Well, you know, as the as the noob in residence, um, recently starting to play with Linux, I don't find it difficult to use. I mean, now it's pretty pretty synonymous to a Windows or a Mac, and I felt less lost on Linux than I did the most recent time that I had to get on somebody's Mac and try to use it. Well, Aaron, and that uh, don't take this the wrong way, but that's probably because you haven't done enough with it. Uh, yes, checking email and browsing the web, it's fine, but have you tried to uh, set up a VPN with it? Or well, but but then the question is, how many how many users on a percentage out there set up a VPN with right. Windows? Yeah, and so that's that's the issue. It's it, but when you make something quote unquote easy to use, you alienate the power users. Uh, and I think Seth had a good example there with Windows Vista. They simplified. They, it was the same thing with XP, right? Uh, one of the guys I worked with when XP came out called it the Fisher Price interface. Um, they took the uh, the the interface that we knew and loved, and they simplified it. And that made it easier to adopt for the home user, for the masses, but the uh, professionals rebelled against it. And you're seeing that same thing in Linux. So it's sort of a two-edged sword. You can't make too many drastic changes and assume that nobody's going to set up a VPN. Um, but at the same time, you you have to hide that. You know, To make it easier, you have to hide the complex stuff. And then the people who use the complex stuff complain that it's hidden. And see, I think we're going to have the same problem again with Windows 8. Since they're simplifying it now down to a tile system, us power users, and even some of the, or I wouldn't even say the power users, the like you were saying, Mark, the system administrator type people are going to be just against Windows 8 if they have no way of, of adjusting that down. They just need That's, a hotkey to switch to sucky mode. <laughs> 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 and and maybe that's control it. SK. Yeah, maybe you need two interfaces, but then you know, then you're wasting resources in in your development, right? If you well, that's right, the yeah. idea of command line. It's the same idea that's been there forever. You know, I, I drop even in Windows Seven or XP. I I use the command line a lot still in that to do things, just because I've done it all the way back to DOS. You know, five Some of the things that I do. Well, I mean, and, for to, for drawing a line, a similar line there. I mean, look at Windows PowerShell. It, that's just as powerful as the Linux terminal, and yeah. yet it, it's and still being actively developed, even though we have all these, you know, graphical user interfaces. Yeah, we I just had PowerShell. a week long seminar in our shop where they did a big thing for all the DBAs and server manager guys about Windows PowerShell because of the fact you can do so much with it. Okay, so moving to the next thing, updates. The idea that you have uh, either your rolling updates or your all-at-once big OS updates every couple of years or every six months, um, that's an issue. Uh, you know, what's the right way to do it? Uh, Microsoft does a major update every three or four years, right, whereas Apple tends to do updates more quickly in Linux, depending on what you've got, right? Um, 
what was it? Uh, I, uh, Paul Therott on, on Windows Weekly, a, a podcast I like to listen to, made a joke. He said, when, when you've got, uh, 400 updates, uh, all at once, what do you call that? Well, if you're a Linux user, you call that Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking of like open office. Um, and you know how if you wanted to go from 3.0 to 3.1, you had to download the entire open office thing. And install it. You couldn't do like the rolling update with that. And, um, again, I know with the other, um, it, and again, I think that a lot of this is being addressed and you're more talking about arguments from history for some of these, but I don't want to have to reinstall an application or an OS every time there's an update. I would like to have just a little hot fix for it or something. But, okay. So how do you, manage that from the standpoint of an entire distribution, which is thousands of individual projects. Uh, who's in charge of managing all those patches? That sounds uh, yeah, unwieldy. Bones. Yeah. I would say there is no perfect button here. There is no magic bullet for this particular one because everyone has their own idea of their perfect system. A lot of people like the rolling system, the rolling releases where they install and just keep, they, they never reformat and they never do anything again. Other people like the idea of the the you know pave nuke and pave. Um, it, that's going to be one of those things. That everyone's going to have their own special, their own idea, their own special idea of what they want out of an operating system. Me, I'm both worlds. I like the rolling releases for my my media center and my server because I don't ever want to nuke and pave those particular things ever again. They need to stay static. But now my laptop and my workstation at, at work, they need, you know, if, if I have to be down for a day to, to upgrade to the next version of, you know, Mint or Suzy or Fedora, that's okay. I'm okay with a, a, a day, but it, it needs to be an easier process because even on a Windows install or even a Linux install, when you nuke and pave, you're talking hours of backup to do a nuke and pave. There's got to be a better way. Uh, and are the Linux distributions getting too big? You know, uh, Microsoft got in trouble for trying to put every single thing into an OS. That was the whole Department of Justice versus Microsoft thing. But yet, in our Linux distribution, everything is attached to that distribution. And if you move to another one, you have to get their version of it. So, uh, do we need to divorce the apps from the OS and have a different kind of update cycle for them. Kind of a good question, I think. That's the mobile model, model, right? You get a, an iPhone or an Android device, you get a bare bones OS, and then you load your apps uh, individually. And, and really, that's the Windows model, too. Um, Windows comes pretty lean. Linux, however, has prided itself over the years of being a complete uh, usable system immediately. Right, and I mean, like it's I don't know is is that the way to go? Is or is are we too big for one size fits all? Because it's like you know when I see a one size fits all hat, I know I can't wear it, and so I call it one size fits everybody smaller than me. <laughs> um, and are we getting to the point to where we're trying to put so much in it that one size is not going to fit everybody, and so everybody's going to have something to complain about? Which leads us to the next point on his uh, list, uh, point number six, standardization. There are very few standards 
in the Linux world because it is so many disparate groups doing so many disparate things. Right, and that's one of the things that's holding it back. You know, one of the reasons that Apple is gaining a foothold in the business world is because there is the Apple standard, and so Windows and Microsoft can write things to interface with it, and Apple can interface with them, but Microsoft isn't going to try to interface with a thousand distributions of Linux. They're like, if you guys will pick one, maybe two, then we'll let you in uh, and play nice in group policy and stuff. But if you're not, you know, have fun out there doing your own thing. Is I mean, that's how I see it. It's just like, if you guys, if Linux could quit fighting each other, you know, Ubuntu versus Fedora versus Red Hat versus Puppy, you know, quit fighting each other and team up, then you could topple the evil Microsoft empire maybe. Let me let me give you a good example of that from my own life recently. Um, setting up the new website for Element OP Productions, uh, I downloaded a, a plug-in module that um, has been problematic since I put it on there because it requires PHP 5, and my host is only running PHP 4.3, when there are a lot of hosts out there still running PHP 3. So we can't even agree on standards within single apps. Um, you know, you might have, uh, you know, for your Windows sharing, you might have Samba. That's, we all agree that that's sort of the standard way to talk to Windows, but there are several different versions of Samba running right now. And so do you have the stable or the unstable? Do you have the development branch or, and so, uh, there's more to standardization than just picking apps. There's even picking revisions. And I think sometimes, uh, application teams, product teams, rev a, uh, an application just because. Oh, it's been six months. Let's add a, a dot .03 to it instead of a dot .02. Well, and Adobe is a perfect example of that because Adobe 9 had an issue with Windows 7 and permissions and things didn't work, and they fixed it, but when version 10 came out, it reverted to the same problem, and then it was a long time before they fixed it for 10, so you could either have 10 that didn't work on a standard Windows 7 machine or downgrade to 9 that did work on a standard Windows 7 machine. So that's exactly what you're talking about. Even within the same company, people don't always talk to each other, much less you have these different companies fighting for control and dominance in the Linux world. So here's the question. Who sets the standard? That's exactly. a great question. Another government entity. <laughs> oh, good let's lord! Cre let's create a, a uh, subcommittee of a subcommittee. Which government, though? I mean, the open source uh, stuff ranges all over the world. That's true. You've got Red Hat based in America. You've got SUSE based in Germany, and you've got uh, uh, Ubuntu based in South Africa. And there's even one based in Turkey that I was looking at. I can't remember the name of it, but it was actually looked really good. So uh, we might talk land. about that later. So that's a big issue. Standardization is a problem, and I don't know how you fix it in open source. The the openness sort of makes that difficult, if not impossible. Well, will you ever get to? I mean, are these stream, these mainstreams so divergent that they just become entirely different things? And there, you're, you have standardizations uh, within Red Hat, with, within Ubuntu, and and you know, forget ever. Uh, any kind of cross-pollination of ideas at that point? Does it does that happen? Is that where we're heading, you think? Or Well, if that happens, then Linux will never be more than a bit player. 
because depending on like the market research, Linux has between like say three and ten percent of the desktop market share. Now I could see Microsoft wanting to be able to integrate ten percent of the of desktop computers into their environments, but if you have twenty different people making up that ten percent, they're not going to waste their time on a half a percent or one percent of desktop computers. Wait, I just had a thought. I'm going to make Stallman happy here, and I'm going to make a distinction here between Linux and GNU Linux. Linux is standardized. Kernel.org, right? The Linux kernel is a standard. And Linus and his crew don't allow anything in that they don't want in. And then they say, this is the new 2.6 kernel, and that's it. It's when you start making a distribution out of a kernel that you run into problems. So maybe we should run stuff through Linus and see what he thinks. So set up the set up the nation of Linux to be the boss. <laughs> Or even maybe instead of the um, instead of having Linus and his crew doing all the decision, um, should we make the kernel bigger and have more things in the kernel? Like having Samba in the kernel. I mean, that that sounds scary to me in a little bit, but it would if we had a, a standardization of of that type of idea in the kernel, then Apple and Microsoft could then see the kernel and see the stuff and work on it accordingly. We just got really geeky, by the way, for any new <laughs> listeners. When we, when we just, when I dropped the word kernel on you, the big K, we went crazy. Yes. <laughs> but I think that well, illustrates I mean, the fact that it's difficult. Yeah. Well, I think it would have to be, you know, you know, as far as it actually possibly happening, maybe even somewhere in between where you have Linus et al. working on the kernel and then you have a standardized suite of tier one applications or extensions or whatever. And then beyond that, then just kind of have, you know, have at it and see what happens. But maybe that would, well, that maybe bring, that'll actually that, happen. That brings us into the next number, our next bulletin, so to speak, uh, proprietary software. Yeah. What if I want to write a piece of code to run on Linux or I want to write a program, but I don't want to share it with anybody. I just want to put it out there. Well, you know, Linux is not going to, the Linux FOSS crowd is not going to like that. What's FOSS? Free open that... source software. Oh. I had to ask that question because I'm supposed to be the noob. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. And, or, or some people say FLOSS, free libre open source software, to make the distinction between free as in beer and free as in speech. <sighs> Okay, so uh, that sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the DRM thing. It's the same argument. Um, if you would just get off your high horse about the fact that it that it's always open and always free, uh, then you have a better chance of actually penetrating somewhere. And, and right. uh, distributions like uh, Linux Mint are doing that. Um, they're including non-free stuff. In their even not not entirely legally, but they're doing it, and that's why everybody loves Mint because it works just immediately because it's got all that stuff or a lot of stuff built right into it. Well, and is this a way for a company like Microsoft to exert a lot of influence in the Linux community? Suppose they release an API um, and said, if uh, you know, if Linux will use this API. Uh, then they will be able to interface with our network. Um, you know, then they can play nice with Active Directory. Then you all of a sudden fragment the Linux community, 
Linux distros that play with Active Directory and those that don't. Well, and this also brings up the subject of proprietary drivers on the same note. Yeah, it's all it's all the same thing. It's uh it's DRM, it's proprietary software, it's anything that's not open. And the open source community has sort of hung their hat on um eliminate or fighting anything that's not open. Give uh, me free software or give me performance. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so true, especially with people that are um Nvidia users. Um right now I think the the open source Nvidia driver is okay but it's not you know it, it's not first day ready right and then that uh, sort of ties into uh his point number eight new users right new users aaron the the newbin residence is actually too geeky for this conversation uh, he's got too much experience what happens to the new guy who gets dropped in the middle of this minefield, uh, and he doesn't know the difference between beer and speech, and he doesn't know what a proprietary driver is or what a binary blob is, and he doesn't know that the kernel is one thing and that the desktop is another. What, what are we doing to help those people out? And my answer is not much. No, yeah, it's the, uh, if you're a Christian, you know what the phrase preaching to the choir is, and it seems like all of the Linux marketing is kind of preaching to the choir. We're all we're all the Linux users are telling all the other Linux users how great Linux is and why isn't anybody else but us using Linux. And somebody who doesn't know what it is can't ever figure it out. Um, Sorry. So how do we fix that? Uh, maybe the same way we do uh, have a, a centralized support. Maybe we need a centralized uh, evangelist. Right. I mean, Apple has that. Apple has a division of evangelism. Well, and I think a lot of it is the point he makes in number nine about marketing. You know, when Apple launched the whole, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC, you know, those things were not really true, most of them. But, man, they were funny, and they made people want to use a Mac. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and again, I, I was I would cringe when they would talk because a lot of it was just, pure marketing hype, but uh, look what it did for Max. And you notice there is no advertising for Linux. Right. Once again, who would do it? You know, it's that fragmentation problem again. Yep. See, that almost should be its own bullet, is the fact that Linux, or the Linux environment is so fragmented. You remember a few years ago, IBM in the U.S. did some pretty heavy marketing with Linux with that creepy white-haired kid that represented Linux. You remember those? Oh, yeah. Those yeah. were weird. And when you do advertising like that, you do more harm than good. Right? So it's like Linux is this weird Sherpa mutant albino kid. Um, and, and, and I think it did more to scare people than it did to make them want to try it. Yeah, because well, he was guys- a kid that everybody could pick on in school. <laughs> Even the geeks could pick on him. <laughs> Have you have you guys seen the old joke that has gone around for years on the web about if Microsoft made cars? Right. Yes. This list of things, you know, for no reason your car would qu- crash twice a day. Every time they repainted the lines on the road, you'd have to buy a new car, all those kind of things. I think us as a group ought to develop one if Linux made cars. And it would be things like you'd open the, the user's manual and it would just say... <laughs> Read the whatever you know RTFM whatever you said earlier. That'd be the entire manual. <laughs> Go online to this 
right. this blog to learn how to fix, you know, change the oil in your car. Well, if uh, the Linux community made cars, you'd get your chassis from one place, but then you'd have to go compile your engine. And then if you wanted air conditioner, you'd have to your choice between the free air conditioning and the proprietary air conditioning. Proprietary air conditioning would keep you cool. The free air conditioning would be rolling down your windows. Yeah. Um, and and seven out of ten gas stations that you pulled up to, you the the pump would fit in the hole, but the gas wouldn't actually go in, you know, being like the, the drivers. Any right. new gas stations, you'd have to go to old gas stations to put gas in your car. <laughs> I think we ought to develop this. It could go viral. I think <laughs> that would be really be cool. <laughs> but that is a side note. Somebody who has the document open, I'm, I'm going to put that here. I'm, I'm doing that now. Yeah, and uh, Mark, uh, number nine on his uh, list was marketing, and we just covered that without even looking at the notes. So we'll skip over to, to number 10. His final thing was the high road. And Seth, what did he mean by that? Well, he was just talking like it's um, when you do the tightwad tech, you talk about the gray beard or the bandana guy. Ne- neck beard. It's, neck beard. Okay. Neck beard. It's kind of like being, you know, a reclusive hermit Jedi master versus a teacher. You know, I know everything. Don't you wish you could do is what I can do versus a teacher come, let me teach you how to do this. Right. The attitude so. is almost, you haven't earned my help yet. And I've seen right. that in forums, right? If somebody will post a question, and the first response is, did you even do a search in the forums? That's been answered 500 times. All right, it will be a lot easier for a guy to just post a link to where it already been asked than to excoriate the guy who didn't do the search. Yeah, it, it was that easy for him to find, find it for him and post the link. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Let me Google that for you.com. Yeah, and so uh, I've I've said that when we did on the Tightwad Tech, we did our OS wars. Uh, I said that one of the single greatest attributes of Linux is the community, and one of the single greatest detriments of Linux is the community, uh, because you get all these uh, guys who really have that high road mentality. Um, you know, people don't want to work for their computers; they don't want to be mechanics to drive their car either. They just want it to go. They want it to be an appliance, a toaster where you put a DVD in and it plays. They don't want to have to look to see if they have the live DVD CSS file, uh, DLL file in, in the path. They don't care. But, uh, the Linux community as, uh, as a whole seems to exalt the, uh, the high road. That goes back to the, if it's not free, it's dead thing too. Well, I wonder if that also comes down to, um, you know, every, all these, the neckbeards and the bandana guys. And some of the other the jerk offs and in, in forums, you know, I could see the the gurus, so to speak, of the Linux people being a little more stringent because they're working on he- heavy duty stuff. But the guys that are the you having in search for this, that almost reminds me of back in the eighties and nineties when you heard people, you know, the the quote unquote hackers who wouldn't help you learn how to do something until you earned enough cred with them. That whole mindset, yeah. And I wonder if that's coming back here a little bit again, because if if you're not high enough on the totem pole, you don't get help. Yeah, we won't hire you until you have experience. Yeah, but I can't get experience if you won't <laughs> hire me. Is uh, you know. So if you're interested in reading uh, the original take on this, the uh, Tech Republic blog link will be in the show notes for this episode. Uh, I think we've. Uh, um, effectively blathered about each one of these points. Uh, I don't know that we have any answers, but I promised you at the beginning of the show that we probably wouldn't. So I delivered. Um, <laughs> having said yes, that, we did it. Yes. Um, <laughs> do we have any other comments on that before we move on to our tips of the week? 
Well, I just say it came from the uh, it came from the blog Ten Things, which is a cool kind of just computery blog you might check out anyway. Oh, did I have it wrong? I thought it was Tech Republic. Oh, oh it, was, it, it is a blog over at Tech Republic. Ah, but I got you. It was called Ten Things. It's a sub blog of a blog. Nice. Well, well, like Tech Republic is a site, <laughs> so right. This is a blog on the site. Okay. So, yeah. oh, great Godfather of the command line. What pronouncements do you have for us this week? Well, this week I I bring you extra battery life for your laptops. <laughs> I know I know a lot of us are are laptop users, and I know Mark that you're running laptops for most of your stuff down there. Yep. Um. It, Linux has decent usage of batteries in their, you know, they're not bad, but they're definitely not as good as some of the the Windows systems for how long batteries last. And a lot of that has to do with what's still running on your machine when you think it's turned off. This this command line, if you install a program called PowerTop, what it does is it'll go through, and while you're on, while you're running. Um, you type in PowerTop or pseudo PowerTop, and what this will do is it'll actually go through and monitor what your computer's using for you know what's being the big drain on your battery, and recommend things that you can turn off. So, for example, on my laptop, Bluetooth sucks my battery down to nothing flat. But if I have, it, but now that I, I've seen that in my with PowerTop. PowerTop can turn it off for me, or I can just remember to turn off my Bluetooth. Um, there's other things that it, it'll automatically turn off, like it'll it'll automatically change the performance of your hard drive to be more optimum for your environment. It'll suggest other things that you can do. Uh, be careful because some of the things that it'll prompt you to do may do things that you're not ready for to turn off, like uh, USB support. So be sure to read what it says down there before you hit the button that it tells you to hit. Because it's a simple interface. It literally says to change your hard drive per, uh, performance, press H. And then it automatically does the tuning to the to the kernel. Um, to turn off USB, you press U. But if you're using a USB keyboard and mouse, that now would be the a keyboard bad idea. Mouse, yeah. yeah. So read what it says before you run it. Uh, you can get a little bit more information over at Wikipedia. They do have a pretty good write-up about PowerTop. And then if you want to squeeze even more minutes and or hours out of your laptop, go over to lesswatts.org. The link will be in the show notes. They have a list of things you can do to try and squeeze more power out of your laptops. Um, so, yeah, Windows OEMs have been doing this for years. Uh, uh, Acer and HP and Gateway and Asus, the, all laptops pretty much come with some thing where you can pick your mode, right? I'm in uh, uh-huh. theater mode or portable mode or even they'll, you know, when you unplug it, it'll switch into a, a low power mode. So this is kind of the, the Linux equivalent of that uh, catching well, up with you. not really because Linux already does this, but not all laptops are equal. So the power save mode may not be fully tuned for your laptop. So PowerTop will actually tune it for your laptop. Okay. Looking over it, it looks really cool. I really like it. It it works. My laptop, before I run PowerTop, would get about two hours of battery life. 
after I ran power top and did all the tunings that it suggests that I, were safe for me to do, um, I get about four. Wow. So it's worth the time. And it only takes about 30 minutes for you to get a good, you know, they suggest more to get your, you know, for power top to do its job correctly. But, you know, I get, you know, a, two hours more battery life just by having it, by doing it for about 30 minutes. That's cool. Oh, great command line, Godfather. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and Seth, what is our consumer tip of the week? Well, you know, last time I talked about the Trinidad and Tobago Computer Society, or Tobago, I guess. Um, but And I was going to go on to something else, but I found theopendisc.com, which is another great source for open software. And they actually have two different versions. There's the open disc, which is just a bunch of programs. And then there's the open education disc, which is kind of designed for, um, it is designed for, use in education setting. So it has things, you know, like scientific calculators, periodic table and stuff like that in it. Um, and they, you need a DVD. So it has a lot more programs than the Trinidad and Tobago did. And like I say, I just found this one about a week or so ago and I was like, dude, this is awesome. I wish I would have known about it before last show. So I thought I would pass it along to everybody because once you get someone hooked on the idea that there is good free software out there and that not all free software is junk then they become a lot more receptive to linux and just you know breathing life into an old pc that windows doesn't seem to work on anymore so there you go kind of a two-for-one thing i'm looking through their website lots and lots of stuff on there some of it is industry grade truecrypt for example uh is the industry standard really for whole disk encryption um, and it's open source and free. Yeah, and like the battle for Westnoth or however you say that is like a really like kind of like civilization, uh, Civ one or Civ two or whatever number. It's a really <laughs> good polished game. So it's not just a cheap game that somebody put together in five minutes. But you would think, how is this free? So, and of course, you, we all know the reason you have a computer is to play games and listen to music. Now, specifically, this is all Windows stuff. It says so yes. on the site. High quality open source software for Windows. Right, but like I say, once you get someone open to the fact that open that free software is good, then you can you know take them on their next step. And you know, for the long term convert, this is the doorway. This is the gateway program to get them all the way over to Linux. The gateway drug. Yes. (laughs) So leave it to Seth to bring a Windows-only pick to the Linux desktop uh, podcast. Right, because I want the Windows people to come with me. You really are uh, uh, a double uh, agent, aren't you? You you work for I really am. Aaron, what is your noob discovery of the week? Well, since we spent the last hour-ish kind of bashing all the problems with Linux and <laughs> and how it doesn't work together and all that. I've got a site called whylinuxisbetter.net that I stumbled across. Uh, and it's it's got big pretty buttons um, <laughs> all labeled. Button number one is forget about viruses. Button number two is your system unstable. Button number three, Linux protects your computer. And you click on each one of those and it either has some links or it has some information, additional information, some demonstration videos. 
And so it's kind of the one-stop shop for all the all the reasons that people say that Linux should be your operating system of choice. Wow. And I just got to say, some of these are just bald-faced lies. <laughs> so this goes in with our marketing point from before. Yeah. This is this is Linux attempt at a marketing ploy. Point number four there says, forget about drivers. We just did a half-hour rant about drivers. And here in big, bold print, Linux doesn't need separate drivers. All the drivers are already included in the Linux kernel, the core of the system that comes with every single Linux distribution. That's absolutely true, if they exist at all. <laughs> yes, this means out-of-the-box ready per- per- peripherals. That is a lie, people. Why Linux is better.net, you are liars. Now, I don't know if everything on the page is a lie, but that is. You just couldn't see the word sum in point zero 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 one print. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, you do forget about them. You, you, you don't have an option of going and getting one. I mean, <laughs> there you, you go. Just, it's true. You forget about drivers. <laughs> forget about finding the one you need. That's what I should have said. And there's well, a point anyway. there that says enjoy free and unlimited support. Again, we just spent half an hour complaining about support. Play hundreds, play tens of games for free. <laughs> well, no, hundreds of versions of Sudoku and Solitaire. Play hundreds of versions of Solitaire. Um, anyway, it's a, it's an interesting, it's entertainment if nothing else. And I love the, the 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 four buttons they have of why you should stick to Windows for now. There's proprietary software you can't live without. With a, a noose. Yeah, you're a hardcore gamer. You work in the book printing industry. <laughs> is there a printing industry anymore? I guess there is. Uh, and your hardware is not yet supported. Um, so anyway, that's... that's uh, Keep an eye on the weather. What? <laughs> yeah, that's one of their points. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, so... For the Linux evangelist in you. I, I have that's a hard great. time uh, standing by that one, Aaron, but definitely that that is a noob discovery because anybody who's not a noob wouldn't believe it. Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, this is the point where I say uh, where you can find out more about us, and that is, uh, as the website I mentioned earlier, elementop.com, uh, where we have this uh, podcast and uh, others for your listening enjoyment. You can email this group of guys at uh, edl at elementop.com. You can uh, find where we all hang out on Twitter at twitter.com slash elementop. There's an everyday Linux list there. Or, of course, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash pages slash Slash one zero three nine 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 eight four seven six two eight seven four one. We really need to get the likes up on that so it can be facebook.com slash element opie. Just to go out there, find us, search for element opie on, on uh, Facebook and like us, please. I'm begging you. And um, I think uh, also there's a call widget. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we'll uh, play your uh, um call on one of our shows uh, right there from our website you can just enter your phone number and click call me and google voice will call you and you can leave us a message you know i did that to call into one of the other shows and yes, it's did. really cool how it works and that will be airing on a show in the future all right <laughs> all right well i guess that wraps up this show any other final words before we say good night i'm it's good it's been fun All right, well, thank you for joining us, and that wraps up this episode of Everyday Linux.